you're beginning to wonder. I've only got through three Psalms in 45 minutes. I'm making through all 15 this morning. Well, you know, I'm just going to keep you here until we get them all done, right? <laughs> no, we will press on. We will press on. Let's move on to Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, you who dwell in heaven. Behold, as the eyes of the servant are the upon the hands of their masters, so and as the eyes of the handmaid are upon the hands of her mistress, so are our eyes upon you, O Lord, until he have mercy upon us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us for we are rejected with contempt. For our soul is greatly overwhelmed. We are a reproach to the rich and proud consider us with derision. One of my favorite songs in the early charismatic days was that turn your eyes upon Jesus. Remember that song? Look full in his wonderful face. And Catholics sing that or just Protestants? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Did y'all know this song? Oh my goodness, that was a great charismatic song, at least among the Protestants, at least, you know, in the 60s and 70s. I've been around this, I've been around this way too long. But that was one of my favorite songs, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and the Things of Earth Grow Strangely Dim. This psalm, in this psalm, the psalmist says, I lift my eyes to you, O Lord, who dwell in heaven. You are that, you are the one upon whom I gaze. And boy, this is, if you wanna learn about discipleship, this image that he uses, as the eyes of a servant are upon his master. So, and as the eyes of a mistress, as, as an eyes of a handmaid is upon her mistress. Now, you know, when you were a servant to the king and the king sat down to eat, you watched his every move. You watched everything he did. If he dropped something, you immediately got it and returned it to him, right? If his cup was empty, you immediately filled it up. You wanted to excel as a servant because it was a good thing to excel as a servant. And so your eyes were fixed upon your master. And so our eyes are fixed upon the Lord. What is the Lord doing? We spend so much of our time trying to get God to pay attention to what we're doing, can we start paying attention to what God is doing? What is the Lord doing? And let's get in line with what he is doing. Let's get in the flow of what the Lord is doing. Watch the Spirit of God as a servant watches the hands of his master. Back in the 50s and early 60s, it was a very religious nation, wasn't it? It was a very religious nation. Everybody went to church. They all got dressed up 
They wore suits, you know, wore nice hats. They went to church. But you know, the children of that era looked at church as an hypocrisy. This, it didn't make sense to them. The whole concept of getting dressed up, going to church, being nice, meeting everyone. I mean, it was actually a pretty wonderful thing. But the children saw that as an hypocrisy because they didn't see the life of Jesus being fleshed out in the lives of that generation ahead of them. It's actually in the 60s that we came up with the term the generation gap, right? There's a generation gap. That those who were growing up in the, in the 50s and 60s, or at least in the 60s, were struggling with the concept of church, even though it was a very religious nation. And you listen to the folk songs of the 50, of the, particularly of the early 60s, they're very religious. But there was a longing for something that was greater than the religion of just getting dressed up and going to church. And God started to move. God started to move in the lives of the, you know, of those in their late teens and their 20s, in the late 60s and into the 70s. And they had really no real desire for church, but they had a strong desire for Jesus. And we called them Jesus people. Do you remember that? The Jesus people. They didn't go to church to worship, they went into parks with their guitars and they sang songs of praise and worship and they passed a Bible around each other. All right, I grew up, I was a Jesus person, right? My conversion experience was in that era when we, we actually, we would do that. We would go into parks and would sit with our guitars and we would play and sing. And you know what our songbook was? It was the King James Bible. <laughs> and we would stand there with the King James Bible open and we would sing directly out of the Bible. And a lot of those songs, well, some of you remember some of those songs from Psalm 119. The word of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Remember that song? You don't know that song. We used to sing that song. <laughs> Jesus people song. We were straight out of the King James Bible. And that's how we would sing. That's how we would worship. That's what God was doing. And the churches that embraced that movement, embraced the movement of the Holy Spirit, they became, they became what we later knew in the 80s were the mega churches, right? The churches with, you know, 8, 10, 12,000 people in them. As they would draw in these young people, and there's the independent church movement, sometimes referred to the independent church movement. And it kind of killed the whole thing, quite frankly. It kind of killed the whole thing, kind of squelched the spirit because it tried to institutionalize this dynamic move that God was doing among people, particularly young, young people in those late 60s and early 70s. A lot of times what we see the Lord doing is something we don't expect. God never does what we expect him to. 
I like what C.S. Lewis says about God. He says, he's not a tame lion. <laughs> God is not tame. He's going to do something new. And a lot of us, you know, you came out of the, um, the Catholic charismatic movement, which I'm beginning to discover took a little different form. Y'all did things a little differently than we did in the, in the uh, Jesus, Jesus people movement. That's okay. And sometimes there is a desire for us to recreate what God did that drew us to him. But God's always doing something new. He's always giving us a new song. He's always giving us a new wine. He is always pouring himself out upon us in a new way. And so we need to find what God is doing now. If I honestly believe that I could grow this church by standing out in the park with my guitar, singing out of the King James Bible, believe me, I would do it. <laughs> but I don't think that's what God is doing now. So we must always be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. What is God doing now? How is God reaching into the lives of people now? Ruth was sharing with me about her uh, grandchild, great-grandchild, grandchild, who's five? She's eight, okay, but she grew up with, she has a very deep spiritual experience as a young child. I've got a grandson, great, yeah, grandson, who is two, all right, and has a profound spiritual experience. He, um, every time, I was telling Ruth, every time he sees a crucifix, he takes it and hugs it. He has visions of his guardian angel all the time. And we'll ask him, do you see your, do you see your angel? And he'll look around. Oh, yeah, he's over there. <laughs> Maybe that's the generation God is reaching because we've so messed up the generation ahead of it. But what is God doing? Watch the Lord. Watch the Lord. And follow what he does. Do what he does. Focus on Jesus. One of the things I noticed, I noticed in, in driving my car, is that if you look over to see, you know, you look over in the lane next to you, the next thing you know, you're drifting that way. You just notice that? Um, I'm a terrible bicycle rider, but I like riding a bicycle. And I remember when I was in graduate school, I used to ride my bike to, to school. And it was, I don't know, it was like four or five miles away, not too far. So, but I would, I would ride my bicycle to, to, to graduate school. And um, I remember one day I'm riding to school and there was this rock in the road. It's a big rock. So I was like, oh, I, you know, I want to miss that rock. So I was looking at that rock, saying, I've got to miss that rock. Guess what I did? I hit the rock. <laughs> because rather than looking where I should be going to miss the rock, I looked at the rock and I hit it. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, if we're always focused on him and on what he is doing, then it will be, it will steer us to him. It will steer us to him. A lot of times people, you know, ask me what, you know, they get, they pick up a Bible, they're new Christians, new in the church, they pick up a Bible and say, what should I read? And I said, well, you want to read the Gospels? 
And when you're finished reading the Gospels, read the Gospels again. <laughs> read the Gospels. Implant in yourself the life and teaching ministry of Jesus. So you can shape your lives, you can model your life after him. There was a, a great book uh, by uh, Charles Shedd, I think was his name, In His Steps, in which, a, in which a whole town began to be transformed around the question, what would Jesus do? The whole town said, whatever we do, we're going to ask ourselves the question, what would Jesus do? And it all began with a homeless man, a homeless man who came into town. He had lost his job to technology. He had a, I think he was a printing press operator, an automated press came along, came along and, and uh, so he lost his job to the technology and um, he became homeless. He was poverty stricken. And the, and the town was struggling, what do we do with this, this individual? And so, the town decided we will, we will build our lives around the question, what would Jesus do? But the only way you can, the only question that wakes, way question works for you is if you know what Jesus did. How did Jesus respond to different situations in his life? And once we know what Jesus did, we can ask ourselves the question, what would Jesus do? So if we want to focus our lives, we want to reproduce the life of Christ in us so that people will know that we are Christians, we must know what Christ did. So we focus our lives upon the Gospels. We read the Gospels. We center ourselves in the Gospels. We meditate upon his life and teaching ministry. Most, some of you know my wife wrote a really delightful book called Who is Jesus? And it, it came out of an, uh, an experience of Ignatian imaginative prayer where she goes through the Gospels. She, she imagines herself within every story in the Gospel and, and experiences that. And out of her own experience, that imaginative experience of being present in these Gospel stories, she wrote this little book called Who is Jesus? It's a marvelous, marvelous book. And um, it's a great way to go through the Gospels because... Um, you know, like a, a little paragraph of Jesus healing somebody and suddenly you got several pages of, the, of, of you know, the of background. And it's all imagined, it's all imagined, I realize, but it's a tremendous way to experience Christ in our lives, is to go through the Gospels in imagining, imagining, imagine you were, you were born blind. Imagine you were born blind and Jesus came and healed you. Imagine you were a leper and no one would get within 10 feet of you. And Jesus cleansed you so you could actually embrace someone again. You know, you see, go through these, and in your imagination, prayerful imagination, you can experience the life and teaching ministry of Jesus in a very special way. And as we gaze upon the Lord, like a servant watches the hand of his masters. We are so focused, laser focused on Christ. Then our life can, will begin to be transformed. The more we meditate upon Christ, the more we will become like him. Because we become like the one we worship. We will become like 
the one we worship. I lift up my eyes to you who dwell in heaven. I watch your hands as servant watches the hands of his master. Have mercy, O Lord, for our soul is greatly overwhelmed. Psalm 124. If it had not been that the Lord was with us, let Israel now say, if it had not been that the Lord was with us, when men rose up against us, perhaps they would have swallowed us up alive. When their fury was blazing against us, perhaps the waters would have drowned us. My soul has passed through a torrent. My soul has passed through an overwhelming flood. Blessed be the Lord who will not allow them to devour us with their tongues. My soul has been delivered as a sparrow is delivered from the trap of the hunter. Their trap is broken and we are delivered. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, if you remember how this psalm is sung, after the pilgrim has reached Jerusalem, he's entered in Jerusalem's gates a couple of songs before, and as he's moving through the city of Jerusalem, and along this path, he contemplates this. I have been overwhelmed in my life. I've had people seek to destroy me in my life. In fact, the whole nation of Israel has had many seek to destroy. So many times has Israel been conquered by so many different people. But the Lord has always been our help. The Lord has always protected us from being swallowed up alive. Even though my soul has passed through a torrent, even though we have gone through difficult times, even though we have gone it's been like a flood. Has anyone ever felt like you're being drowned, overwhelmed by a flood? Have you felt that way? I have so many times, so many times. There's so many times when people have risen up against me and tried to destroy me. I told you about the 18 page letter, but, but you know, remember I used to live in Beirut. <laughs> Let me tell you. It's a life-changing experience to have people try to kill you in your sleep. So when I, my life has faced so many troubles, I think one of the difficulties that we have in trying to explain God to this generation, to our society, our culture, is that life's too easy for them. Life is so easy. They don't have to plant a seed and pray, God, please, you know, please bring rain. Please allow this seed to grow so that I can have something to eat in a month from now. We don't have to go out looking for game so we can put meat on our table. We just walk down to the store. It's all there. Oh, I see a lot of vegetables there. Well, I won't eat those. They're not organic. I've got to, I've got to pay twice as much and get these over here. You know, we have life so handed to us. It's very easy to go through our life and forget God. 
Not that don't think we need God. But in the midst of our society, there is so much brokenness. There is so much pain. We even have a special word for it. It's the new brokenness, we call it dysfunction. <laughs> there is so much dysfunction. What's a dysfunction? It's like a car that runs, but a couple of cylinders aren't working. You ever been in a car that's, that's got a couple of cylinders that aren't firing right? You know, <laughs> you can get to where you're going, but it's a really rough ride. And eventually the whole thing's just gonna quit on you. God brings wholeness into people's lives. That's a message we need to bring to people. We're not the farmers who plant the seed and pray that we get a crop in a couple of months so that we can survive. But yet we are so broken. We are so broken and God brings wholeness to people. In fact, we call ourselves Catholics. One of the ways we can't, you know, a lot of times you hear people translate the Catholic Church as, as universal, and that, that's true. But you can also translate it wholeness. We're the church that brings wholeness to people. When we come to a worship experience, God ministers to all of our senses, our sight, our smell. If you go to a church that uses incense, we use that in a 930 mass. <laughs> But our sight, our smell, our taste, our touch, we don't get the touch like we used to, and that breaks my heart. There's always such a joy, you get to the peace and you get to embrace people. If you're married, you get to kiss your wife, you know, and that's always sweet too. It's a holistic reach into our lives. Our whole beings need to be saved, we're not just you know, that's one of the problems with evangelicals, you know, is, is that they're all about you getting to heaven, but they don't want to take, they, they don't give you much to go on today. <laughs> but we bring salvation to our whole being and we can bring salvation to our whole society. But there have been so many times when I have felt overwhelmed and some of you have as well, but in the midst of the worst, in the midst of a flood that's about to wash over you, God always keeps you. God always keeps you. Sometimes it's a rough ride. I will, I'll, I'll admit to that. But God always keeps you. The one thing that will bring disaster upon you is fear. If we grow afraid, fear itself is not a disaster. But if we grow afraid, then the fear itself will lead to a disaster. You see, fear is not a disaster, but it is the anticipation of a disaster, right? Fear is really nothing, all right? But fear is anticipation. Things are gonna go wrong. Something bad is going to happen. But faith, is the assurance of deliverance. Faith is the assurance that even though things look bad right now, God is still going to care for us. God is still going to provide for us. 
God is still going to watch over us. That's why a person of faith can even come to their deathbed in peace. And the knowledge that even in death, God is still going to look after us. He is still going to care for us. There's a, a prayer in the funeral service, which I've said too many of lately. For those who are in Christ, death does not bring an ending. It just brings change. Our lives do not end. Our lives simply change. We can deal with that. We can handle that. Because our God is always with us. He does not ever leave us or forsake us. And one of the things that this psalmist is teaching us is that when we come to those points and we face that overwhelming flood, to remember how God has taken care of us before. He reflects back on how many times Israel has been attacked, how many times in his life people have tried to attack him, and God has always cared for him. Remembering how God has cared for us when we feel overwhelmed gives us the strength to resist the accuser, gives us the strength to rise up against that fear which wants to possess us. That desperation, one of the things I know about desperation is desperation, desperate people always make mistakes. Desperate people always do foolish things because they're desperate. Why do you think that most lottery tickets are bought by people who can't afford to make pay their rent? <laughs> they're desperate. So they'll throw a few dollars away that they can't afford to throw away. Goodness gracious, and the same is true of the boats, of the casinos. They, people are there desperate for that big win that they think will get them through. But the God who created the universe is able to keep you from drowning. When the flood comes upon you, the God who created the universe is able to keep you to watch over you, to protect you, to raise you up, to survive the flood, and to bring you into his promise. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, that he made the heavens and the earth. He can probably take care of my little problem today. God is our deliverer. Psalm 125. Again, as you walk through the streets of Jerusalem, going to the temple, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem shall not be shaken. Surrounding Jerusalem are the mountains that offer protection. So the Lord surrounds his people from this moment until forever. For the Lord will not allow the wicked to inherit the rewards of the righteous. 
Therefore the righteous should never stretch out their hands to dishonesty. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. Reward those whose heart is upright. But lead away into bondage the workers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. Remember, this journey began with that with Psalm 120, the psalm of self-examination. Now, as the pilgrim is in, as he's walking through the streets of Jerusalem, and he's beginning to reflect once again. We come out of a world that can taint us. We come out of a world that can tempt us. And so he reflects on that. God surrounds this city with his mountains. These mountains all around the city of Jerusalem protect it. In the same way God surrounds his people, he protects us. And so let us never give in to the despair or the that sense of overwhelming we talked about in the just saw the psalm previously. Let us remain firm. Because those who do iniquity, God is not going to allow them to, in, to enjoy the blessings. The blessings of God's presence. The blessings of the peace of Jerusalem. And as a prayer, I want to leave all that behind. I want to be pure. I want my heart pure so that I can enter into the presence of God. I can leave these things behind and rely upon God to protect me. So when we face troubles, not to be tempted to fix it ourselves, but allow God to bring his deliverance. So the psalmist is praying, don't let the world infect me. We don't want the world to infect our souls our mind, our will, and our emotions. We don't want the world to infect the way we think. The world will do that. The world will tell us what to think. We don't want the world to infect our will, our decisions, what we should do. We don't want the world to affect our emotions. We want to be firmly planted in God and in God alone. You ever go shopping for a car? <laughs> car salesmen, all right? They are trained to know how to infect your emotions, your mind, and your will, aren't they? They are trained to be able to make you want something. I'm not speaking, any car salesman here, I don't mean to be dissing the whole profession because we need car salesmen. But, you know, there's a train. Well, I say car salesman, all right? I was raised a Protestant. I was raised a Protestant minister. We're trained as a Protestant minister. And there are a lot of times in my own training to be a Protestant minister, I just didn't like what I was hearing from those who were teaching me. I didn't like what I was hearing from their teachers. It just didn't entirely seem honest. Of course, I was trained in an evangelical tradition. And I remember 
someone who was teaching me about church music, right? And they were explaining to me how to arrange songs so you get everybody really excited and then you and then help them calm down. Get them excited and then calm them down. There's a phrase about that, it's called three fast and two slow. So if you go to a lot of churches, a lot of Protestant churches, that's what they're trained in, three fast and two slow. So you go there and the beginning songs are like really peppy and they're exciting and they're great. You sing about three or maybe four of those songs and you sing them over and over and over again. And then you sing some real slow, nice, calm song. Okay. But there's a level of emotional manipulation going on that I just wasn't entirely comfortable with. So, any, any car salesman who happened to be hearing this, I'm not just dissing your profession, my profession too. Because we are trained to manipulate people and we build ourselves, we build our, 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 our sales book, or we build our clientele, or we build our churches through emotional manipulation, and that is just plain wrong. We need to bring people to Jesus. If we bring people to Jesus, if we people have an experience of the Holy Spirit that is real, that is dynamic, that is actual in their lives, then I don't need to puff up anybody's emotions. If after this series of talks, you at least get this whole concept of, of, of your eyes upon the hands of the Master, watching what Jesus is doing, finding Jesus, following Jesus. I don't need to worry about your emotions. I know that you are okay. And I am too. I have to live that way. I have to live with my own eyes upon what Jesus is speaking, what Jesus is doing in this generation with these people, with the people who are gathered here. Because the world is destined for destruction. If we allow the world to infect our mind, our wills, and our emotions, it's destined for destruction. But that which we give to Jesus will last forever. We are destined for life eternal. So don't let those destined for destruction influence you and rob you of your peace. Psalm 126. When the Lord brought the captives from back to Zion, we became like men in a dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with rejoicing. They will proclaim among the Gentiles, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Refresh our lives, O Lord, be for us a stream in the desert waste. They sowed their seed in tears, but they shall reap their harvest in joy. Going, they went and wept, casting their seeds, but returning, they shall come with joyfulness, carrying 
their sheaves. All the songs, all the songs that I remember as a kid growing up. Bringing in the sheaves. You know that song? Bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Yeah, I sang that in many a Baptist revival. All right. But it's a beautiful image. The images actually relates to the captivity. There are two cap, actually, yeah, at least two. There are at least two captivities. The Assyrian captivity of northern Israel, the Babylonian captivity of southern Israel, and but they were restored to the land. God brought them back. And when they brought them back, they were rejoicing. They were singing. They were so excited that they were coming back to their land. They had been exiled among the Gentiles, but now they were coming back to their land. And so the psalmist is telling us, remember what God has done. Pray and rejoice. But when they were taken captive, when they were taken away, the psalmist makes this comment. As they were going, or as they were going away weeping, they were casting seeds. Casting seeds. The seeds they were casting were their prayers. They were praying, they were longing, even as they were being drug away and we in tears. They were longing for their return, praying for their return. And then when they brought back, came back, they rejoiced. In our lives, sometimes we go through what John of the Cross would call a dark night of the soul. We go through those periods that just aren't fun. Ever been through that? That you come to church, you go to mass, you do everything, and you go home and say, I just, I just don't, I feel empty. I don't feel like anything really happened. It's easy in those times to give up. I think we have a whole society that has done that, a whole society that has, has said, I just don't get anything out of church. We have a whole culture of, of, that's going through a dark night right now. But imagine this. Imagine your doctor has told you you're going, you're going to go blind. You have an eye disease, you're going to go blind. You may have your sight for three months, six months, a year, I don't know. But eventually you're going to go blind. We don't have a cure for this eye disease. And so when you have that, what do you do? Well, you, you probably take some time learning Braille, right? And you, and you set everything up in the house just the way you want it. You memorize where every chair is, every table is, every step is. You memorize what goes into each cabinet. So that when darkness comes, you can remember what you knew in the light. And we need to live our lives like that at some point, in some ways. We need to be so convinced of the experience we have of God 
that when God allows us to go through this dark night, when suddenly the experiences doesn't have the, the, the joy and the exuberance that it once had. You know, this, this is a charismatic renewal teaching, right? And, and so, you know, the charismatic renewal used to have a lot more people in it, right? <laughs> but there was a time, there came a point in which it lost some of its excitement to people. And they saw, well, why bother? But remember in the dark what you knew in the light. And you press forward. You continue because this is where God called you to be. And so you press on. And I'm so grateful to those of you who are here. Many of you have pressed on in the charismatic renewal for decades. For decades. Because you knew that God was doing something. And even though it may not be as exciting as it used to be, yet you still press on because you are faithful. You are faithful. And that makes a difference. When Israel was taken captive, it was a very traumatic experience. You know, all of our understanding, every one of us, are affected by our culture, our training, our education, our background. We're all affected by that. And in their understanding, the understanding of, of the whole ancient world, not just of the ancient Jews, the whole ancient world believed that there were different gods in different places. Every place had its own god. And you see that very clearly in, in the, if you read the life of Abraham, I goes from place to place, and every place he goes as a different god. And Abraham was very gracious, and he'd always make a little offering to this God, make an offering to that God. doesn't mean you stop believing in God. He was just being gracious, all right? But that was their understanding. And the understanding that the God of Israel, Yahweh, or Yah, the God of Israel, lived in Jerusalem. The temple was his house, was his home. <laughs> We're going to get to a psalm that talks about God's footprints. Because there was a belief that God's feet, his footprints were inside the temple. And they believed that was true. In fact, one of the most clear places you see this is in Elijah's ministry. Um, the Syrian, Naaman, a Syrian, is, is cleansed of leprosy, right? He's healed. And he says, from now on, he says to Elisha, and from now on, I'm only going to worship the God of Israel. So you know what he did? He got big jars and he filled them with dirt. You know this in the story? He takes back some dirt from Israel. Why does he do that? Because this is the God of Israel. So if he wants to worship the God of Israel, he has to bring some dirt from Israel and he makes a little sandbox in Syria. So when he wants to worship the God of Israel, he can stand in his sandbox because every because God is the God of a place. He has to move part of that place to the new place so he can worship. This is actually true. It's in the Bible. Read this. So when they were taken captive to Assyria or to Babylon, guess what? They didn't know if they could even worship God anymore. They're not in their land anymore. Their faith has been robbed of them. 
No wonder they wept when they left. They were leaving their God behind. But they learned. They learned God is bigger than what than they thought he was. In fact, as you read through the Psalms, and you can see some of those, you'll see some Psalms where God is referred to as the God of Israel. And then you see some Psalms that says God is God of the universe. He's God of the whole, whole world, whole earth. Because there was a shift in their thinking and their understanding. God is bigger than we think he is. And so we sow seeds. Sometimes our seeds are prayers. Sometimes our seeds are a word of kindness. Sometimes our seed are a gift to the church or a gift to the poor. We sow seeds, but then we rejoice in the harvest. Often we sow in tears, but God promises that we will harvest rejoicing. Psalm 127, we're continuing our walk to the temple. This looks like as far as we're going to get before lunch. Unless the Lord build the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord protect the city, the watchman keeps watch in vain. It is vain for you to rise before light. It is useless to toil without pausing to sit. Those who give themselves to anxiety will eat the bread of sorrow when our God shall give sleep to his beloved. Behold, the inheritance of the Lord are children. The reward is the fruit of the womb. Like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior, so are children of them whose youth has been restored. Blessed is the man that has filled his quiver with them. He shall not be ashamed when he speaks to his enemies in the gate. In the last psalm, we talked about sowing seeds. There's a difference between sowing seed and toiling. We give, when we sow a seed, we are giving ourselves, we're giving what we have to God. We're giving what we have to God and we're allowing God to bring increase. We put our seed in the ground, we trust God to bring the rain and to, and to nourish the seed so to grow and flourish. A seed is something, is an expression of trust, an expression of faith. But toiling, that's something different. That's where we're trying to shape the world to our own will, to bend things to the way we want them to be. That's the toil. And the psalmist says, you can toil all you want, but you're going to toil in vain, because if God doesn't build the house, building is useless. You can keep watch all night long, 
But if God doesn't protect the city, keeping watch is useless. So the psalmist encourages us to rather than toil, to sow seeds, to allow God to bring the, infant, in, in, the increase. To live our lives in such a way that we cooperate with God's plan. That we cooperate with what he is doing and he will bring the increase. The Lord will build, the Lord will protect, the Lord will give fruitfulness to us, the children. I love it. You know, of course, in an agricultural society, this makes so much sense. The blessing, you know, the way God blesses you is by giving you children. Blessed is the man who has a quiver full of him. Right? We, don't, we don't do it that way so much anymore. But, it, but can we have spiritual children? Can God fill our quivers with spiritual children? Because we have planted his seed, because we have cast our seed for the Lord to grow, for the Lord to build. And then we know with certainty, once again, even if we sow in tears, we will harvest rejoicing.